0: Brilliant. Okay, so uh, we will get through this material as quick as we can because uh, I spent a lot more time in the first session than I was allotted or I had expected, so I apologise for that. But um, this is th- what I want to share with you now is really, really important and it's very strongly on my heart um, because I believe that one of the greatest desi- uh, desires and drivers of any Aussie leader is a desire for autonomy. There's something about self-governing that seems to be hardwired into the Aussie culture. In fact, in a, the, the great Australian dream is the definition of success. We all want to get a little block somewhere, you know, where we can put up a big fence, block ourselves away from the world, and do what we want, when we want, how we want, with whoever we want, and have the money to pay for it, right? <laughs> Come on, that's, that's the goal, that's the desire. That seems to be, and particularly if, um, if you come from a background where money was tight or you grew up in an environment where, you know, your, your parents were controlling or whatever, you just seem to want to break out from that. It seems to be uh, something that is in the heart of, I think, just about every Aussie guy I know and maybe girl, I don't speak with the same level of authority in regards to that, but woven into this desire, woven into this uh, ambition, is the assumption, and this is the problem, is the assumption that I can handle it. Because we all know stories of people who have found themselves in positions of authority and blew it. People who won the lotto, if you will. People who had the money to do what they wanted, when they wanted, with whomever they wanted and pay for it. And in the end, they just ran all over the place, you know. <laughs> Completely and totally unrestrained. <laughs> f yes, I know it's your grandson. I can tell just by the level of unrestraint. <laughs> for most of us, it can't happen fast enough. You know, I'm five and I'm still confined to this playpen. I want to get out. You know, and and what we don't, I think, realise, and here this is, I'm getting a little serious here. <laughs> What we don't realize, I reckon, is that by the time you're in your mid 40s, which is a long time for some, but it was a while ago for others, that uh, you start to develop this low level sense of anger. And uh, it's just there. And you don't even know where it comes from. And you whinge about your wife, uh, but you chose her. Uh, (laughs) You whinge about your career. But you chose it. <laughs> you whinge about the boss. You whinge about the government. You find yourself whining about everything. And I want to put to you that you've possibly never characterised it. You've possibly never realised what it actually was. It's not that you're disappointed with your wife. Not that you're going to run off with your secretary because she's younger and cuter or whatever. <laughs> It's not that you're disappointed with your career because you were expecting to climb the corporate ladder. You know, I thought by now I'd have a church of 10,000 with, you know, seven or eight campuses and I'd be in my helicopter flying between each of them. And it just hasn't happened, James. (laughs) It's it's not this. It's this sense of, I had this expectation that I was going to be in control and I'm not. And at 45... Forty-six, I can't see it happening. And so what I do is I start to try to pull down under the mind and whinge about everybody who is. And we're confused. If you're still in your 20s or 30s, mark mark this down, will you? Because, you know, it's coming. Uh, call it a midlife crisis, call it what you like. But, but what tends to happen is you get lost. And when you're lost, when men get lost, again, I can speak to men situation more than the ladies when men get lost we don't acknowledge it we just drive faster (laughs) I'm sure it's around here somewhere I'll find it in a minute you know (laughs) and of course the faster you drive in the wrong direction the more you get lost and you've seen it maybe maybe you've experienced it I don't know but you've certainly seen it you've seen it in people you've prayed about it with people You've prayed into people who have been right on the precipice there of, you know, which way is this going to go? Which way are they going to turn? Jesus, I hope they go the right way. I hope they do the right thing. And perhaps you grab the friend by the collar and try to put them back in the right direction. And maybe now it's even you. What I'm suggesting is this. The quest for autonomy is dangerous. It's a dangerous desire. It's not an honourable goal, because it can never be fully and finally satisfied. A thirst, the thirst can never be quenched. You know, It doesn't matter how much uh, you try to satisfy uh, a, a desire, no matter what you do, the desire only grows. Um, the more you drink, the more you have to drink, right? It doesn't matter how much you had for breakfast this morning, um, you're going to be hungry by lunch, you know? It doesn't matter what you try to do to satisfy the desire for power, the desire for autonomy, you will never have enough. And power generally is intoxicating. And intoxicated people don't make good decisions. Here's the point. Autonomy is an illegitimate goal. It's not an honorable, worthy destination. Because it will either leave you with with, with two outcomes. Number one, you'll be frustrated because you didn't get there. Or number two, you'll be isolated because you did. <laughs> Think it through. <laughs> you're either on your own, unaccountable, able to do whatever you want with, with, with whoever you want. Nobody knows about it. <laughs> or you're frustrated because you didn't get what you wanted. Both are detrimental to your life. Both are, uh, are uh, illegitimate places to be. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take an example from the Bible that you all know. I'm going to take an example from history that you kind of know, and then I'm going to talk about us as a group, and bring this home to actually you and I. So let's start with a biblical example that you all know, but we'll go there anyhow. And King David is 50 years of age. So when I said you know towards the end of his 40s, they reckon that that's when it kind of hits, and we don't know exactly when it hit. David, but we know when it culminated, he seems to be about 50 years of age. By this time, he's been the king of Israel for 20 years. Talk about power! He had total power. There was nobody who could who could um, really bring David into line at all. He was the warrior's warrior. He had secured power. He had created a legacy. Uh, David was a legend. And he's roaming around on his roof one particular day and he, he comes across a part of the roof where he can see into the, the, the property next door and there's a woman in the bath, naked bathing. And let's be honest, gentlemen, it probably wasn't the first time he was in that part of the roof at that particular time of the day. But here he is looking at this girl, this beautiful woman, um, naked in her bath. And naturally enough, his heart and his mind goes to places that if a man looks at those kind of things long enough, his heart will eventually wander there. And so he says to his servant, go and find out and check out this girl and find out who she is. The servant does as he's told, as you would do if you were a servant in David's palace or a servant in any palace, particularly in that particular time of history. But he does a very, very courageous thing. This servant of the king, who's gone on a reconnaissance mission to get the... the, uh, uh, the intel on the beautiful girl, the beautiful woman next door, comes back, and this is what he says. And I want you to hear the wisdom in his words. Uh, the man said, "In uh, sec, if you want to open up in Second Samuel 11, we're going to just you know ju- jump around a little bit through the story there. Second Samuel 11, in verse three, the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite.' What is he saying to his boss? He's saying she's not just a body; she's somebody." She's this guy's daughter. You know her dad. (laughs) That's a big deal, folks. And her husband, she's not just some image, but this woman has a husband. And you happen to know of the husband. The husband right now is in a foxhole somewhere, uh, lying in the mud, fighting, putting his life on the line to defend your honor and your nation. That's her husband that's who she is she's not just a body she's somebody so what he does here is he uh, personalizes her right he he gives her a history because it's funny when you have a history and you know the the details how that changes the attitude of the heart but powerful people have difficulty listening to their servants and david gets his way with her and she becomes pregnant as i'm sure you all know what david does does next is what most powerful or men or women in power do when things aren't going well. They power up and they try to control the outcome. So he uh, he brings Bathsheba into the plan and she some some reason or other plays along. He sends a, a message out to uh, to Joab who's the military commander. He says take Uriah the Hittite, send him back with a report on how the battle is going. David's got all this schemed, all this planned out. He's hiding his tracks. He's covering what he's done. Um, Politicians and kings have been doing this for years. (laughs) Nothing's changed in the last, I don't know how many thousand years, right? So he brings the guy home and the guy says, this is what's going on in the battle. David says, oh, fantastic. You're doing a great job. And there's a sign of my appreciation. Go home and spend the night with your wife. So he wanders out of the throne room and David congratulates himself and says, well, there you go. That's it. He'll go home. He'll sleep with his wife. Um, no one will know who the child is. This thing will be covered over and nobody will have ever heard of David and Bathsheba. <laughs> How wrong could he have ever been? Here we are thousands of years later and billions of people know this story. In that moment, David thought, I've covered it and no one will ever hear of it again. <laughs> so you're all so, so, so David finds out that Uriah doesn't get home and sleep with his wife. He sleeps at the, with the servants at the gate of the palace. Um, so he brings it back and says, what the heck? Why? I mean, she's beautiful. She's there. She's waiting for you. It's been how long? You know, you could have. And uh, why? And in verse 11, um, Uriah says to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house, eat, drink, and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, King, I would not do such a thing. Wow. (laughs) Wow. I mean, how many know you take your cues from this guy, right? I mean, this is one honorable dude, right? I mean, this guy has a thing that we would call integrity. But David is the ultimate schemer. Right, I mean, David is is a strategist, and he's always coming up with a way. If this way doesn't work, he goes another way. So he goes, okay, fine. Well, let's let's have a party tonight. You know, you're hanging around, staying around another day. Come and David thinks, I'll get him drunk, right? Then when he's drunk, he will lose sight of all his, you know, his honourable intentions. Just a thought. The average person who gets drunk loses sight of all honourable intentions. Why I don't drink, but anyhow, just put it out there, what it's worth. (laughs) Just leave it with you. so, um, so he does that. He brings him. He 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 gets him drunk, and um, and David's intention uh, invitation in verse thirteen. He ate, he drank with him. David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out and slept on the mat amongst his master's servants, and he didn't go home. Oh boy, this guy is out maneuvering David at David's own game, and David. This guy doesn't even know it. This guy's integrity is outmaneuvering the person who's trying to control him. Just think about that for a minute too, just by the way. (laughs) David resorts to behavior that he's absolutely assured is going to conceal what has taken place. And so he does something which is just dreadful. He writes a letter. He brings Uriah back into the throne room, seals this with the king's seal. So nobody can open this letter. Nobody but the person who was addressed to would ever know what was on this letter. His name was Joab. Nobody except Joab and us because uh, here's the letter. (laughs) (laughs) So he's carrying this sealed letter uh, back to the front to give to his commander. And in it, it said this in verse 15. It says, But Uriah, he said, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. <laughs> what could Joab do? Joab was a man under authority. Joab understood the, uh, the lines of command. And so Joab does exactly as David commands him. Put Uriah in the front, they withdraw, Uriah gets struck down, and Uriah dies. When Uriah's wife heard in verse 26 that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. But after the time of mourning was over, David brought her into his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David had done something that he thought would remain in secret. And of course, what David had done has now become public knowledge. Households in David's time, particularly in palaces and the like, run by slaves, and slaves traded in information. The currency in these environments was information. And the slaves and the servants in David's um, palace knew what had happened. And How many know that you do write, as we spoke about earlier, you write history one decision at a time. You're writing the story of your life one decision at a time. And the decisions that you make stay in your story forever. The decisions that you make stay in your story forever. God will forgive you. But the decisions that you make stay in your story forever. And David had muddied his reputation, permanently undermined his moral authority in the context of his family. And David lost something that he could not control. David lost control of his kids. <laughs> I can tell you, you might be able to control your employees. You might be able to control your servants, but you can never control your children. And uh, and so David's kids now, uh, this this whole thing is out of control what well, The son rapes his half-sister, uh, then that brother rises up and brings revenge on behalf of the sister who he raped and kills that guy, and then you, attempts to usurp David's throne. And David's family is an absolute mess. David made one decision that wasn't motivated by love and, and faith, it was motivated by self-centeredness. Uh, and then a whole bunch of decisions that were motivated by trying to put the wagons in a circle and conceal it. Right. So we talk about, you know, revert back to the previous message there, if you will. And, and how many know that, that, that your children, dad, mum, your congregation, pastor, will not always value what you value, but they will almost always disdain what you disdain. And David showed a disdain for the truth. David showed a disdain for integrity. And we think David might have messed it up. Well, you know, it wasn't just the decision that David made to go and sleep with Bathsheba that caused the problem. Uh, the problem was found, I believe, in verse 1, where it says, In the springtime, when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and all of the Israelite army. The men who rode to power with David, the men who... Um, escorted David when he was out in the in the deserts and in, in the, the wilderness while Saul was hunting him the men who loved David the men who were not enamored by his kingship because they knew him when he was just a shepherd boy those guys had gone and David was in a place of danger because the people who could confront him and tell him the truth were not in his world And he's isolated, he's entitled, and he's alone, and he's this far from the destruction of his family. Bear that in mind. If God ever decides to give you a position of authority, if God ever decides to give you a position of power, don't ever isolate yourself from people who can tell you the truth. Don't ever put yourself in a place where Somebody who is not beholden to you for anything, for a job or for, you know, a position, can speak directly into your situation. The king's men were gone and David was susceptible. Autonomy is a myth, a trap, and an unworthy goal. Did you hear that? The culture of Australia, (laughs) autonomy is a myth, a trap, and an unworthy goal. I said I'd give you an illustration from the Bible. You, You knew that one. Albert Speer, you've probably never heard of Albert Speer, but you've all heard of Adolf Hitler. Well, Albert Speer was Adolf Hitler's architect. And Albert Speer was assigned by Hitler to design Berlin to make it more beautiful than Paris he had a model in his office of what berlin would one day look like and the whole idea was behind it was that it would surpass paris as the most beautiful city in europe he published a memoir called inside the third reich and according to speer hitler knew nothing of his enemies he didn't listen to anybody he only trusted his instinct according to him he was governed by his instinct and had extreme contempt for just about everybody. Sounds like a leader, or, anyway. Sounds like people we know today, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and he makes this statement, which, which is a statement I, I really want you to carry away from today. He says, we need to resist the attraction, or, or we need to resist the evolution, what he calls the evolution of a court. The evolution of the court. And what he means by the evolution of the court, which Hitler had found himself in, is this he was surrounded by his subordinates that were so dependent upon his affirmation that they'd tell him everything that he wanted them to say right the evolution of a court it's the natural inc- it's the natural flow of any power structure when you're at the apex of a power structure those beneath you uh, are dependent upon your affirmation and maybe even dependent upon your purse strings dependent upon your signature on their check and that motivates them even though sometimes they don't even realize it that motivates them to tell you what they think you want to hear and this was this was his description of the third reich that this was hitler was now surrounded by sycophants by people who would only tell him what they think they, what they thought he wanted to hear. And of course, the end result was the you know they didn't do too well in the Second World War. as I'm, I'm sure you know. But his point is, and my point is, that, that this is what happens to all of us. In fact, most leaders kind of lean into that and are susceptible to that temptation. This is one of the greatest temptations of leadership. Because you'll bring people around you who love you, people around you who respect you, but people who are enamored by your gift and by your talent and who think that your autonomy is, is just the result of your incredible gifted intelligent intelligence and talent. And this leaves you isolated and vulnerable. Seldom do we ever find a man who pursues community, Seldom do we find a man who says, hey, I have a place to function in this body and I'm just going to find my place and I'm going to function there. Uh, everybody, uh, most men p- pursue each their own goodness, uh, the proverb says. Most men are about doing their own thing. I want to build my thing. I want to be the head. I want to be autonomous in my own world where I can do what I want and go where I want and 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 behave how i want seldom do we find a man who recognizes that i am part of the body of christ i want to find out what my part in that body is and i want to perform that to the best of my ability giving life to the body that isn't the goal that's not that's that's not the intention of the world in which we live in but i want to suggest to you that is the goal is the intention of the kingdom of god Autonomy is an appetite that cannot be fully and finally satisfied. Uh, the, more you, the more that you, you, you get, the more of it that you want. And the end result is what we see with David. The end result is what we see with, with, with uh, Tiger Woods. The end result, I could name, name names that you name. I, I have literally, folks, I've literally sat in board meetings with people who are intelligent but have been so enamored by the bloke at the end that I've had to question decisions that have been made. You've got to be kidding me. You can't do that. Oh no, but he says so. Yeah, well, he's wrong. <laughs> Someone's got to be able to tell you yeah. you're wrong. Yeah. No, yeah. that doesn't work. And you have got to be prepared and open to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how or where God might place you. When the men go off to war, don't stay home because you can you go off the war with them yes. right not because they necessarily need your speakers you might not be able to throw it as hard as you used to throw it but you need their company see one of the reasons why we have regions and look i, I understand that this is a bit you know kind of um uh, uh, it w- more really uh, just fr- from a point of view of governance than than necessarily relationship because it's just you know lines on a map but But it's something, and the reason that that, that within our movement there are wheels within wheels is because we recognize that relationship is is important. And and it's it's not so much where you're going, it's not so much what you do, and it's not so much how clever you are and how significant you are. It's really about are you part of the team? Are you contributing to the team? And when you're not contributing to the team, when it's all about you, you are heading down the wrong track. I mentioned David, and I, and I mentioned Adolf Hitler. But, but here's my point with us, and, and, and I'll close in just a moment. My point with us is that we can become enamored by the one, by the leader, right? What you need to know, and hear me clear, what you need to know is the supreme leader, right, The one at the top of of the organizational structure of the ACC is not the national president. It's the national conference. You know, James has said national conference is on as April. The national conference is the supreme body of our movement. It's not one person. It's many people. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. Because out of the many come the ones. And out of the many have come a whole bunch of ones. You know, you you know the ones that have come out of the many. Right? And all the ones owe who they've become to the many. But it's easy for a one to lose sight of the fact that they wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the many. <laughs> and so they come out of the many thinking, well, I don't need the many because I'm a one. <laughs> but you know there's a problem. You know, if Pastor Wayne gets hit by a bus tomorrow, I don't know why we always use the bus analogy, but if he gets hit by a bus tomorrow, he's not driven on a bus or ridden on a bus for years I imagine but anyway if he got hit by a bus tomorrow it would be sad right and we would grieve and send flowers to Lynn no doubt about it but from a movement point of view it's a speed bump if you know what I'm saying from a movement point of view you know I don't want anyone don't think I'm speaking badly of Wayne but yeah well you can tell him if you like I've told him it's all good it's all good uh, I can tell him the truth. <laughs> yeah, he's family. Because because the point is, you know, because he is not the many, he's the supreme thing. And so we'll have a conference in April and we'll vote someone else in. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And there'll be people at that conference, who we'll be talking about Wayne Alcorn and I go, who, who's Wayne Alcorn? Never heard of him. <laughs> They'll be at the conference. Make no mistake about it. I know that him. I've been in my church for i I've been in my church for forty years, right? In six months' time, they are going to be people who go, John Hunt who? Who's he? What, what, what was he ever about? <laughs> that's the way life works. Uh, but that's good. Yeah. That's healthy. Yeah. If you look at, his, at, a, at, a, at a system and you go, boy, when he goes, the system's dead, yeah. then you've got a problem yeah. because, the, because it's the one. Let me tell you something. This is, this is a church historical fact that you can go away and and, and research for yourself, right? No church, no church has ever lasted more than a 100 years that does not have a clearly defined political means of replacing its leader. And you can think about church in the course of the next 30 years if you like, but we've got to build a church that's going to last hundreds of years. (laughs) This is not just about me and what I can do for the next decade or two or three or four if you're Anthony. You know what I'm saying? Like how many years you got left? I don't know. Because but, but, it's, not, it's not about 40 years, right? It's not even about 20 years. Sorry, mate. You know, or, or 30. I don't know. However long it is, you know. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. It's about, it's about like my grandkids' grandkids. And I, I, if we want this thing to last then we've got to have an identifiable means of replacing our leader. No church in the history, and I don't care how big and how world famous that church might happen to be right now. Will it still be here in a 100 years? And the answer to that, historically speaking, is is there a clearly defined mechanism that appoints the next leader? Political mechanism that appoints the next leader. That is a historical church fact. Now, and the sad thing is facts don't care about your feelings, as Ben Shapiro says, right? So, so, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. We can become enamored with the one, or, or we can recognize that you and I are part of the many. Right? And we can function as the many and give glory to God for the ones that rise up and for, the, for those who God, but recognize that God will always bring them out of the many, and the ones will live for a while, but the ones will, will live and be gone, right? But the many, the many can go on from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation because I want to find my part in the body and fulfill it because for me, autonomy is not the ultimate goal. Community is what I've been created for. So it's just not about my, my moral integrity for the next 10 years. It's not just about that. You know, it's not just about, well, he didn't sleep with anyone, praise God. It's not about that. <laughs> it's about this thing having, having um, a, a impotence into 2021, 2022. Should indeed God tarry. I don't know when God's coming. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. Right, but I knew we thought he was going to be back by the year 2000 when I was at Sunday school. Let me tell you that. right? And so clearly we have to occupy till he comes. So clearly we have to plan as if he ain't coming back for a long time right live like he's coming back tomorrow but plan as if we've got you know not just my lifetime but my grandkids lifetimes and beyond and we want a thriving prosperous church i want the foundations that you and i are building right now to be built upon by generations to follow and generations to follow and generations to follow and not fall over because the one fell over because of this happened because we stayed part of the many and we lent into one another and we didn't make this, we didn't fall into the, the trap of autonomy, but we recognized that we were created for community. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up together, eh? That's, that's enough. <laughs> thank you, Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you that you called us to be together. Lord, when, when we read, you chose your disciples, we saw that it was to be with you. Before you ever sent them out. You chose them to be one with you. Lord, I thank you for the many exploits and the many great things that are going to come for the people in this room. But Father God, more than that, I thank you that you've chosen us to be together. I thank you, Lord, that we are Right now, Lord, in this place in unity, right now in this place, cheering each other on, Lord God. Doing what we can to see the goals and the dreams and the aspirations of each other and and what you've put upon each other's lives come about. And and we thank you for that, Lord. May we never lose sight of that, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. Appreciate it.
1: Brilliant. Thanks, John. Uh that uh you know what? I think you need to mark that one down. And just say, you know, because I would just like to add to that. There's something that I've learned as the further I go into ministry is that I need other people and I more than anything. Uh because the longer you go, you've got to be careful of the blind spots, don't you? The blind spots. They'll get you. So important. And every senior pastor over sixty said, Amen. <laughs> Brilliant. Hey, that was brilliant, isn't it? That's great. John, thanks for coming. Uh, Thank you for coming um, to Gladstone. It's great just to be together. Uh, We'll be meeting again early in February um, just to connect. I think it's so important that we continue to do that and talk to one another. So uh, have a great day. Could you do me a favour? See these little um, name tags. If you could just throw them on the desk on the way out because we then don't have to reproduce them every time we come. That would be much appreciated. Grab a bottle of water. There's still some food you can eat. yeah take with you Um, have lunch on the way home in your car we don't mind otherwise um, go somewhere in this region for lunch and grab two or three other people and uh, have lunch together that'd be brilliant so have a great day thank you